everyone. Uh, Carol here, founder of Singi Trust. Singi Tans for this this August and in celebration, I'd like for us to help Singi get four thousand streams on the Singi Talks podcast, get to forty countries uh, listenership. I'd like you to follow our pages, Singi Trust on on Instagram. Get us to four thousand people. 4,000 people on Facebook at Nsingi Trust and 400 Twitter followers. We would also be very happy if you signed up to become a patron of Nsingi so that we could get 40 patrons. I know you're able to do that, so let's do this and happy birthday, Nsingi. Hi, and welcome to the Nsingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Nsingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of Musingi Talks podcast and I am very excited and honored and uh, a little bit scared to have my <laughs> to have my I'm lying I'm not scared I'm very excited uh, no. <laughs> <I can tell. laughs> to have my my teacher I, it seems like I have quite a number of my teachers on 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 the podcast, but this was my biblical studies uh, lecturer in in college, and I'm very honored and uh, grateful for him to be in this conversation and also for the lessons that he taught so many of us. So Karibu Sana, doc- and now he is Dr. Rob Segman, which okay. is cool, which is exciting. I think the last time I I was in college, you were working towards your PhD or towards your master's? I can't remember. I was working towards the PhD. Yeah. (laughs) It took a long time. (laughs) So welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. It's so good to be with you. And it's it's really, I'm very excited to have this conversation. I, I, I have to say, though, I think in some ways, maybe this is your opportunity to little to give a little bit of payback uh, to me as your lecturer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I'm the one who's actually scared. <laughs> I'll be marking your conversations and be like, no, Carol, you can, no Rob, you can do better there. <laughs> well, as long as you give me the feedback, I'll, I'll improve. <laughs> Thank you. So I know Rob. From um from college from Cornerstone Christian College, and our conversation today is basically around scholarship, theology, decolonization, patriarchy, all the fun, easy things to talk about. I am <laughs> I am honored to have you, and thank you for investing in us as students. And I I, I want to say this, and I'll say it. Uh, in front of the many. Rob, you, I remember, I don't know what we were talking about. And one day you told me, and I've told you this before, that Carol, you're one of the people who I know I will watch in the news or I will listen to in other spaces um, in years to come. So thank you for your words of wisdom and encouragement and prophecy. And may your words continue to come true. 
Uh, thank you, Carol. It's um, yeah, it it has been very exciting just to see what God has been doing in your life and through your life. And I think that's always been the privilege of being able to share life with students wrestling with with the biblical text and trying to make sense of not only our own lives, but I suppose how those lives intersect with some of the very difficult challenges that we face in society. <sighs> yeah, the text. We come back to the text. But before we get into the meat of it, I would like uh, for you to introduce yourself. Who is Rob? And then as always, uh, I love to know what gives you joy and what brings you sadness. Sure. So the question of who is Rob, it's such a such an interesting question. I mean, I suppose it's 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 an easy starting point, but in some ways I think who I am is is always a work in progress. Um I think the older I get, the more aware I become of just how much things have shifted in my own life and in my own sort of um development. Uh but uh, so just in terms of the basics. Um, I think at the heart of it, I'm a biblical scholar, um, but uh, in terms of what occupies my day-to-day existence, I, I am currently involved in sort of the quality assurance side of higher education at a private higher education institution here in South Africa. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's kind of, in some ways, I would refer to that as the, the day job. It's not It's not the primary thing that that motivates and drives me um there's definitely a sense of fulfillment in that in in that area as well but i think the primary driver for my life is is being a biblical scholar um i sometimes describe myself these days as uh as a a kind of part-time biblical scholar in the sense that it's not it's not it's not my primary um, job or function, but it's definitely my heart. It's definitely the the, the space I'd, I'd love to be doing more work in. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of my educational background, as, as you said, Carol, while you, I was teaching you uh, as a student at Cornerstone, I was working towards my PhD, eventually managed to complete that um, a couple of years back. And uh, yeah, it's in New Testament studies, and I specifically focused on uh, Paul and masculinity, um, which I think is uh, obviously a very contemporary kind of topic to be addressing and uh, and to be wrestling with. I'm married um, to a wonderful woman who's been very patient um, with me and and my calling, and and I think that's that's also made me the kind of person that I am today. And two lovely kids um, as well, and uh, yeah, we we try just. Uh, make a small difference in, in, in the space that we occupy here in South Africa. We live in Cape Town. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I don't know what else I'd say about myself. I, I think uh, some of the words of Walter Brueggemann come to mind. <laughs> um, I, I would probably describe you, myself. <laughs> you you introduced <laughs> to him as well. Actually. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. He's, he's kind of been an indispensable part of my own formation. Um, yeah, so I think like most people, I, I would consider myself as, as sort of thickly layered, textured, uh, complex. And um, you know, it's still trying to figure out how to give, um, you know, how to give uh, expression to, to my sense of 
of calling and and kind of recognizing that can that that can take on a variety of different forms and shapes. Oh, thank you, Rob. And um, what gives you joy? What brings you what sadness? Joy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what brings me joy is 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 doing the work of of wrestling with the text. But I think not just the text. I, I think wrestling with it in in the context of life and and trying to make sense of how it can speak meaningfully to our situation and then also wrestling with the fact that 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 sometimes doesn't work and um, you know just recognizing that sometimes what we encounter in the text doesn't seem to be able to speak to our situation in in ways that are are liberative or in ways that 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 really um enhance human flourishing um, I think so there's a there's a sense in which that work also um, forces me to face some of the things that bring me sadness right so just a recognition that there's so much in our society that that seems broken and and there's lots of disconnection and and I, I think one of the primary um, sadnesses is, is is recognizing that in as much as my heart is is for academic study and for wrestling with the biblical text in that sort of environment, um, my heart is also drawn towards the church, but also then facing the fact that I think in many ways the church and the academy are at odds with each other. And they struggle to sit at the same table. Um, and and I think there's a there's a sense of loss in that. Um, so I think in some ways, if again, as, as a part of trying to understand where I would locate myself within that church versus academy sort of um, framing is, is to say that the joy and the sadness is, is in trying to bring those two parties together around the table and, and then dealing with the fact that, that we really often don't want to sit at the same table. We don't want to see I, you know, sit, you know, see eye to eye on things. And, and I think, um, as a, as a consequence, I often find myself to be at odds both with the academy and with the church. So I think there's, where there's a sense of a little bit of loss, a little bit of uh, sadness, um, in some ways. Yeah. And, and what would you say? Um, why, why don't we want to sit at the same table? Mm. What's hindrance yeah so my sense of it is is that i think um if i try to straddle both of those worlds um, which i do try uh, it's that the church looks at the academy with a great deal of suspicion um the academy brings uh, perhaps a slightly more critical lens to the biblical text um, and that's often perceived by the church as a threat. I think by the same token, um, the academy looks at the church with a great deal of suspicion and, and, and has a sense of the church being responsible for, for, in some ways, leading people astray precisely because the church fails to bring a critical lens to, to the work that they do. In the context of the church, and so I think both are a bit reluctant to see the other, to recognize the other. So the church doesn't want to recognize the academy so much, and the academy doesn't want to recognize the church so much. I, I think 
obviously, in some ways, that's a bit of a generalization. So one has to be aware of the fact that there are some really beautiful attempts to bring both of those worlds together. And, and often it does work. But I, I think in terms of my own experience and in terms of um, what I've encountered in, in my context here, that I think is, is still an ongoing problem. I, I, I recall uh, my first uh, pastoral um, role um, leading young adults um, in, in, a, in an Anglican church here in South Africa. And um, I think the thing that I struggled with the most was, was trying to find a space within that church context that, that allowed me to, to bring the world of, of the academy into that space. Um, and so it, it, was a, it was a particularly difficult thing because it's, it's almost as if the church didn't want to receive that. Um, because of the suspicion that it has, you know, why do you need academic study when you've got the spirit? Yeah. Kind of framing it that way. Um, but yeah, so I, I would, I would kind of characterize it that way. And, and what was your experience? Were we your first class? Yeah, you were actually. So before that, I'd, I'd taught part time. Um, in, in two different institutions, one charismatic and one Baptist. So I've had a quite a broad range of experiences when it comes to, to teaching students theology or teaching students biblical studies. Um, and I think that's always been a really great um, part of my, my journey. But um, before I started at Cornerstone, I'd done, I'd done three years in an Anglican church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what was the experience then of bringing now the the theological institution in the theological training into a biblical, into the academy and mm. spirituality. And then also the worldview that and the lenses for, with which you were introducing the text of scripture to many of us was very different. So what yeah. was that like? <laughs> well, I mean, you could answer that question now, couldn't you? <laughs> Hear it from the other side because from, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I um I think I think I initially experienced um that that student that first class I taught at Cornerstone um as as being somewhat messy. Um I, I think there were definitely students who who were open to what it was that I was bringing into the space and and I recognized maybe later on that that what i was attempting to do as sincere as i was about what i was trying to do um i also needed to recognize that i didn't always track with my students um and 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 have a sense of their readiness to be able to do some of the more critical engagement with the biblical text um and and i think that's Probably in some ways it's it's true for 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 sort of newbies uh, mm. teaching, right? I, I had done some teaching before I, I started at Cornerstone, um, and so I'd cut my teeth in some ways. But I think there's there's a sense in which uh, at a younger age, when you're teaching, you your passion overrides a more sobered approach to 
engaging with students. So I think there was definitely a sense in which students were open, um, but I also think sometimes I went a little too fast. Um, and I think more recently, as I've reflected back on my teaching experience, I, I also am happy to confess that um, I, I, I did often get it wrong, um, that I think I pushed too hard sometimes, um, and that, as I said, I didn't always track with where students were at um, mm -hmm. to be able to know when engaging in a more critical fashion with the biblical text. Because at the minute we engage more critically, right, we start asking a series of questions that are, are deeply discomforting. Um, mm. and, and, and I don't know that students are always ready to engage with those questions. And I wouldn't say that we shouldn't engage with those questions. I think I would still commit myself to, to making the challenge. But I think when one makes that challenge, how one makes that challenge, uh, makes a big difference. What was what was different with what you were teaching from normal biblical studies? Yeah, um, I think what I was trying to do, and I don't know if that is what made it different, but I I tried to I tried to introduce students to critical engagement with the biblical text, not not as a way to undo faith, but as, as, a, as a part of our faith formation. Um, so yeah. I think there were a number of points in our classes together where I tried to illustrate um, that asking a critical question isn't, isn't a means of undoing your faith commitment. If anything, it should lead to a more robust faith. Um, and, and I think the, the primary um, point of entry in, in, in terms of how that often played out was, was really just dealing with the biblical text as a witness uh, or as a testimony of, of Israel or the early church, accounting for um, the the rich experiences of these people with God, and 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 noticing, I think, in a rather beautiful way, that uh, they they were not scared to ask the critical questions in their own relating to God, and and somehow the the authors of the Bible saw fit to include those those counter testimonies those. Uh, as, um, you know, responses to God being absent sometimes. And, and I think that is, is deeply faith formational and, and trying to get students to, to engage with that becomes quite critical. I think I remember one exercise I did with you guys um, when we were going through the Psalms. And, and, and I have spoken about it previously. <laughs> I forget. That was amazing. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. Yeah, tell me. About it, your it, it, it was, yeah, it, I, I think that that moment, I, I, in some ways it was planned. In, in many other ways, it, it was, it was I, I think, a sensitivity to God's moving. Um, and I wouldn't often describe my teaching in that way, but I, I, I definitely had a sense as we were working through the Psalms of disorientation. Mm. Um, that, that those psalms invited us to, 
to reflect honestly about our own sense of disorientation. Um, and, and, and I came up with an exercise of, of inviting you as the students into a space of writing your own Psalms of disorientation, um, you know, adding Psalm 151 to the, to the canon. Um, uh, and, and, and I think the way that I'd set up that, that exercise was, was deliberate. It, it, I don't know if I shared it with you as students, but I'd, I'd recently lost a very close friend. Um, who'd committed suicide, and um, it, it was it was shortly after that experience that that I was teaching you guys, and um, yeah, I just had a sense that that maybe part of of what my friend had struggled with in his own depression was was trying to find a space to 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 give speech to his own sense of disorientation. Um, and, and so that was that was probably in some ways the the emotional backstory that led me to to the exercise with you as students. And and I think again the point was to say to you, write something that reflects on where you find yourself in relation to God in an honest way that isn't going to be censored in any fashion. That there was going to be no rules about what you could or couldn't say. Um, and and if I remember, I I think I also imposed a time limit on it so that you you wouldn't spend t- too much time trying to make the words pretty, <laughs> and and trying to make sure that you're saying the right thing, um, so that it it was more a, a raw and honest uh, response to a feeling of disorientation. And I just remember the end of that class as as we created it, again. It was an open space, so nobody was forced. To share their psalms of disorientation, but but to say, you know, if you want to share your psalm of disorientation, he has an opportunity. And and I just remember how how we ended off that that class together, just in a circle, holding hands and just acknowledging these words. One, I can remember. Yes, exactly, exactly. I can remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's the life giving stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, as a, as a born questioner, I think to be allowed to question mm-hmm. the text of scripture was yeah. really life giving. Yeah. I, I think, and also the, the tagline that we had at college in the first year leave the question that has always I'm like this is my space because I will question question everything but it's it's yeah. it's living the questions questioning the text questioning yourself questioning society because I think it's through the questioning that you find answers as you're saying for a robust faith a robust community a community yeah. allows all of us in our different shades to find home yeah yeah definitely and i think that idea of finding home is is also just a part of of i think the thing that also drives me is that i think engagement with the text should bring us into a sense of being at home yeah which is also to recognize that there's a lot of homelessness Mm-hmm. You know, not just in 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 our society, actually physically, but I think there's a sense of 
disconnect um, and and you know and maybe that the thing that that uh, contributes to that feeling of disconnect is that sometimes I think the church misses the opportunity to create spaces for people to be honest about their struggles, about their faith, about um, you know asking the question, living the question. There has to be a space for that. Like every part of our lives needs to be able to be brought to speech before God. Otherwise, we're saying that there's certain things that don't belong there. Um, and, and I think whenever there's a sense of an aspect of our lives that, that is somehow prevented from belonging, that contributes to a sense of disconnection from, from community, from God. Oh, yeah. And so I think you find then a lot of homeless people in in church, yeah, people who don't question, yeah, don't can't maybe the questions are too scary to ask, yeah. and so and part of what I hope that the talks we host and the conversations we have around faith, justice, and activism is to allow for Christians and believers to question. God in the sense of the injustice that we see and to question ourselves in regard to the injustice we see and to question the text in regard to to what we see. And so I want to now like to go into the this another question on the text of scripture itself and the colonial undertones that it has, not under the coloniality of yeah. Of the of scripture yeah. and how how do you first as a white male yeah. in South Africa enter into the text teaching um, all races of, of, of students yeah. but also doing the work of decolonization yeah. how, how does all that work what's what why is it important to decolonize? Is it important to decolonize our theological institutions and all that? But more, but more looking as at the text of scripture that as a tool that has been used for coloniality. Mm. How do we decolonize? Is it even possible to decolonize the text of scripture as we have it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's critical work. I I mean. I think that there are two things that that sort of surface in my mind as as being critical to the work of decolonizing and and the first is to recognize the complexity of the biblical text as being both um, uh, subverting the 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 project of coloniality um, the project of empire, but then at the same time also being capable of reinscribing the very logics of of those systems um, and that's the biblical text itself so so in, in terms of of understanding that the text is birthed within historical contexts of of empire and 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 colony in some ways um, that that we have to wrestle with and recognize 
that the text carries a residual imperial and colonial quality that can easily be used and leveraged for um for reinscribing systems of 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 colony and and of empire so as as a biblical scholar i have to work with the text in its context and and part of that work requires me to foreground that fact and to help people to understand that um if we're looking at at paul for example paul is is in a context of empire right he's living in the roman empire under roman rule um he is a product of that empire and and yes in as much as we have evidence in his letters that reflect him subverting that imperial discourse we also have examples of him being implicated in reinscribing those very um systems as well and and i think uh what we've tended to do with the biblical text is 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 almost do a kind of a historical reading that ignores that context um and and what i mean by that is that i think there there's a lot of a lot of good stuff that's been that's been done on on paying attention to the world behind the text um as as an important aspect of trying to make sense of what the words are actually meaning but sometimes i think the 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 historical components that we miss um we miss because we see the text as as primarily um a spirit inspired um thing that that somehow gets to escape the historical location um and 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 somehow the authors of the text are are almost writing as if they were outside of that that imperial context so paul is shaped by the roman empire he is a jew shaped by the roman empire and that makes a difference to how i read his words um and it also then makes a difference to to how we engage with the conversation around decolonization i don't think we can decolonize the historical aspects of the text but we can decolonize our interpretations of the text um mm-hmm. by recognizing the colonial and the imperial um as i said the residual effects of that as the world in which those texts were were first written so that's i think as i said i think there're two things it's recognizing the text itself is is caught up in that world and then i think it's also then wrestling with the the perpetuation of readings of that text that continue to to hold the logic of of empire and and of colonial of coloniality mm. you know as you're speaking rob i i keep thinking about how we want to we consistently want the text to be a political a historical a agenda like we want it to be a clean text yeah even in our explanation without understanding that it was it isn't that and it can exactly. never be that because it was and continues to be a a text for a time written by people written by various people who are experiencing various things and that even the compilation of the whole 
canon itself was yeah. a political process. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 so it's paying attention to that and, and, pre- and not pretending that that isn't the case. As you say, I think that, that tendency to, to want the text to have nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with, with gender and nothing to do with in the sense that they're somehow responsible for it is, is, is what I would call irresponsible engagement with the text, right? It's, it's deceptive in the sense that it's not facing the facts that the text itself plays out in a very messy historical situation. And mm-hmm. it carries the effects of that. Um, you know, those writers were, they didn't step outside of history. And yeah. then quickly, you know, wrote up their letters or wrote up the story of Israel or whatever the case was. They did that in situ. Yeah. It's the thing, there's the word I was looking for, and it's the word, the text is objective. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> you want an objective text, but it isn't. It's a subjective text. It is. It is exactly that. Yeah. And and our interpretation needs to to look yeah to look into that and this is the is why when we politicize quote unquote the text mm. people say we are bringing our politics and we are bringing our issues into the text but if the text is not political then what is it for yeah exactly exactly yeah, yeah. yeah i totally i resonate with that I, I think that's the work that we need to be doing you know, those kinds of readings, um, as, as uncomfortable as they are, are, are the very readings that, that can lead us to liberation, right? Nsingi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice, and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website, www.msingitrust.org, follow us on all our social media handles, at Trust, or email us on info at msingitrust.org. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember this... Um, there's an excess. I wasn't able to do it because I think you are doing it now with the second and the third years, yeah. where you're reading with uh, reading from the margins. Yes, yes. Could you speak about that as a yeah. as an exercise and why yeah. that? What yeah, so, that? yeah. I I think that was one of one of um, the highlights of my teaching career for sure. Um, I, again, I think what's interesting about the backstory with with contextual Bible study and and how I began to introduce it to students um, is that it it came from my engagements with students that that surfaced um, for me something that was needed in in changing how we engage with the biblical text. With, particularly within the context of South Africa, particularly in the context where we are confronted with, um, with so many who have been marginalized in one way or another. And, and I remember when I was a student encountering contextual Bible study, um, 
you know that 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 Gerald West had, had kind of come up with as 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 a, as a strategy for engaging with the text that that recognized two things that there there is a role for educated readers who are trained readers in biblical studies um, and a role for ordinary readers to come together in an engagement with the text um, to make sense of the text, but to make sense of the text with a, with a view to acknowledging that the world in front of the text, the world inhabited by us as readers actually shapes what we see in the text and, and contextual Bible study is first and foremost about reading with those who are on the underside of history, who, who are not the victors. Um, it is intentional in that sense um, because it, it, it recognizes the importance of how one's social location shapes our engagement with the biblical text. And so I, I started to introduce a, a, a course at, at Cornerstone um, called contextual Bible study or reading from the margins, and and it it went through several iterations in the time that I taught it, but it primarily focused on helping students to to acquire a, a basic set of skills around contextual Bible study. How do we do contextual Bible study? And then not not just settling for well, now we've spent some time talking about this theoretical thing. Um, you know, how to do contextual Bible study, but actually doing contextual Bible studies with those communities that we've identified as, as, as marginalized. And I think just to say there, just to make a comment, I, I recognize uh, perhaps now more than I did then that there's always a massive problem um, around who gets to define who's marginalized and who's not marginalized. Um, and I think in some ways there was a kind of naivety in, in my approach, um, in, in how we set things up, but nevertheless, I think the point was that as we as we engaged with these communities, so we would take students out to to marginalised um, communities of various kinds. I remember the one the one year we had a group of of women who who were learning how to read, um, adult women who hadn't yet um, acquired the skills of reading. And, and I think the biggest challenge for our students was how do you do contextual Bible study, which, which presupposes the ability to read yes. with a group of women who are, you know, are, are part of a, a, an adult class in, in literacy. And, um, and, and I said to the students, it's going to be difficult. We're going to have to take on the role of retelling stories to this community, to this group of women. Um, and 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 I think in that we were able to to wrestle with the implication of 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 the power relation that plays out there, right? So you as a as as a reader engaging with those who are busy learning how to read, the power that you have over retelling a story and how that changes how the story is received by your by your co-readers. Um and 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 I think. Again, the, the point of, of, of all of our engagements, the various communities that we, we engaged with, um, was always to help students to, to confront the, the power dynamics that come with being educated. Um, but in that also to recognize that those who, who don't have 
that educational background, you aren't trained as, as, as biblical readers, um, bring something significant to the text that fundamentally reshapes how we understand the text. Um, and so it leads to asking very different set of questions. And again, in some ways, the text really functioned as a, I kind of, in my mind, I have this image of, of the Bible as, as being, as fulfilling a kind of mediate, a mediating role between those students and the communities that they were reading with. Um, and, and kind of coming back to something I'd said at the start of our conversation, the, the, the academy and the church also maybe needs to see the text in a kind of contextual Bible study kind of way as, as mediating a, a new space, uh, a new possibility. But um, yeah, I don't know if you want me to say more about contextual Bible study there. But. Yeah, I'm thinking about how contextual Bible study is... is also in the sense an acknowledgement that context <laughs> it's called contextual bible study because context informs the way we interpret yeah. script yet exactly. I, I go back again to the to the conversation where more and more i find that we want to remove context we want to remove uh, my identities of communities we want to remove um, social location, we want to yeah. remove hierarchy, power, wealth. We want to remove all of that from the readings so that then when we are asked how then shall we live, we will continue living the same way. Nothing changes. Yeah. 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 So, oh, man, beautiful, beautiful mm. conversations, Rob. And we come, I want to as to speak about Paul and mm. uh, <laughs> and for me, Paul is the father of patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Paul has been used to silence us for so mm. long. And, uh, and my one of my favorite teachers, uh, Professor Esther Mombo, calls him uh, Brother Paul. So. <laughs> How, how do we engage with scripture and its patriarchy? Like, mm. because it's not only in some, in some misquoted or some misunderstood verses in Paul's epistles, but it's, it's everywhere. It's. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's the space that it's written. I mean, that, that produces the text, right? Yeah. 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 So, patriarchy and scripture. Go. Yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> nice, easy one. Um, yeah, I, I think the similar comments that I've made about empire and, and coloniality would apply in the context of patriarchy. I, the, there has to be an acknowledgement that, that the world that produced the biblical text was also patriarchal, okay? Um, so if we can accept that as a historical fact, then we also have to accept that those who write the, the text um, are informed and shaped by a patriarchal world. Um, or we could even think of it in terms of a patriarchal worldview that kind of assumed patriarchy as the norm. Um, and, and I think when it comes to Paul, 
it is important to to acknowledge that and and as a consequence then to contextualize a lot of what he says against that backdrop we we are now living in a time or we're we're still trying to deal with patriarchy because it continues to exercise control in society um, but we are more aware now of its impact and of its effect and and i think as a consequence responsible reading of paul needs to also challenge some of what paul says i know that sounds um, quite risky because you know in what sense do we have a right to judge paul by our time but if we're going to continue to hold to the text as having something to say to us in contemporary time then we have to do so in in a more responsible way i think the interesting thing for me though about paul is is that yes i think he's often depicted as the father of patriarchy at least as it plays out in the context of the church and we have perhaps too many proof texts or passages um that are kind of like clobber texts that we use to to beat women out of pulpits uh, yep. or to keep women in their place um and and i think that all stems from patriarchal readings um the patriarchy hasn't disappeared paul is implicated in that system but i think there's an interesting thing that post colonial biblical criticism has helped me to appreciate about paul and that's that paul is a conquered jew and as a conquered jew living in the first century during the empire of the romans there's there's another piece of the puzzle that i need to wrestle with paul uh, what the roman empire did as it conquered nations like the jews was that it 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 had it had its own sort of social media platform of trying to get um the conquered nations to understand where they fit into the scheme of this empire and they often made use of sculptures and and so on uh, to depict the conquered nations and this for me was very interesting as feminized bodies mm-hmm. so paul as a conquered jew we might also read paul as a conquered feminized jew now we're changing the story right yeah yeah so because the the roman imperial ideology had this agenda of of making sure that those who were conquered were depicted as female bodies so that they could uh prop up their masculinity as truly definitive of what it means to be human we have a situation in which conquered nations are constantly seeing themselves as feminized bodies in relation to the masculine roman empire now i read paul's letters and now suddenly there's a different lens that brings things to the surface that i otherwise would maybe have missed that isn't to say that paul doesn't um uh reinscribe patriarchal norms but it also explains those passages in paul that seem to subvert those norms as well and i think again post colonial biblical criticism helps us to understand that paul is as a conquered 
individual or a person belonging to a conquered people a very complex character. He is defined by the, the conquering empire, but he is also trying to hold on to some sense of resisting that empire. Um, it's, it's what we might call, he kind of embodies a hybrid identity. He, he, he does what is necessary to survive in the empire, but at the same time, there's something else working in him that seeks to resist that and, and undermine the empire and therefore also undermine patriarchy. Mm. You know, as, as you're speaking, I keep the, what's coming into my head that even the, even the colonizer, the Rome themselves, yeah. They'll see that the worst thing you can do is or be is feminine because then yes. as an it's still like the conquered is the feminine the exactly the 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 expression of conquering and to yes. actually um to show that you now the list of the list of our worries is now to the picked you as a woman and yeah. so even here when someone in Kenya there's a, a phrase that tells you watch a mama which basically says stop being womanly and that yeah. just uh, is a height of abuse yeah <laughs> definitely but then one of his citizenship was wasn't he a Roman citizen as well what yeah was, into this conversation yeah i mean there is some there is some contestation around around whether or not he was in fact a roman citizen but the let's assume that he was his citizenship uh as as a roman wasn't the only thing that defined who he was he was still a jew right I mean, what the new perspective on Paul does is it, it, it reminds us of how Jewish Paul actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that makes, again, a difference to how we read him and how we engage with, uh, with the kinds of things that would have influenced his thinking. So, yes, he is a product of the Roman Empire, possibly a Roman citizen, but he's also still a Jew um, influenced by Jewish thought. Um, and, and, and I think as a consequence, there's a complexity there and in, introduce into that story this conversion experience as well that reshapes his thinking and, and in some ways begins to set him on a trajectory that, that sometimes places him at fundamental odds with Roman ideology and at odds with Jewish thinking. Because in some ways, Paul's trying to navigate and negotiate this this new thing that happens as a consequence of, of Jesus' death and resurrection and of his experience of that moment, his sort of conversion experience, and of his understanding, again, from a Jewish perspective, um, of, of God's breaking into history in order to deal with um, the, 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 the empire. Um, so I think when we're reading Paul, we don't. We don't want to. We don't want him to let. We don't want to let him off the hook, and and pretend that he doesn't say some of the things that he, he does say. You know, women ought to be silent, 
<laughs> um, he says it, you know, yep. let's not pretend that he never said it, but let's, let's understand it within the context. Um, and then let's also recognize that the point of him saying it is that he is addressing himself to a very particular community in a particular time, addressing a particular problem. We've assumed that somehow that moment has a universal application across time for all time. And that is, that is ridiculous when you think about it. Why yeah. should that cultural moment rooted mm-hmm. in a very specific time somehow be applicable across time? I mean, and, and I think there, there's, there's, I think where a lot of the work is. What are we actually dealing with when we deal with the scriptures? Like, what are we working with? What is it in the first instance? Is the point of our engagement with the biblical text that we imitate everything there? If we say that it is, then we're also saying that cultural moments and cultural expressions of, of, of what it means to be God's people, that those particular moments, as they are reflected or recorded in the biblical text, are somehow normative for all time. Well, then that means all of our expressing of, of faith in our moment now in time are at odds with the biblical text, mm, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think you get the point. But it's, it, it does make the conversation around, around Paul in particular a lot more nuanced. And, and I think we just need to appreciate he he is both guilty of reinscribing systems of patriarchy and and imperial ideology, but he's also simultaneously um, capable of subverting those and setting up the the ecclesia, the church as a as a counter political system um, that sees the world in a different way. You know, thinking Galatians three twenty eight. Yeah. yeah. So. Where, where do women find themselves in, this, in the text of scripture? Yeah. How do I, and just not just women, but any marginalized groups mm. by economies, by sexuality, by yeah. class, in a text that's written by the powerful? and uh, consistently has the texts of terror against LGBTQI, uh, mm-hmm. against women, against um, against very many um, of, of half the population, basically. Yeah. Where do we find ourselves in the text of scriptures? Yeah. So I think I'll answer it two ways. I think the first way is to say that sometimes the reality is is the in the text itself you're absent. Often, right? Women or marginalized groups are absent. Having said that, if we if we recognize that there is more going on in the biblical text than is often accounted for in the text itself, then you're present, right? So there is a there is an overwhelming presence in the material culture that that produces the text in the first place um, that 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 enables us to appreciate and understand that there's a presence of marginalized communities or communities who resist 
the empire or of communities who don't fit the norms of society. So texts are ultimately, um, in the bigger scheme of things, attempting to present a normative view of the world. And I think, unfortunately, even as biblical scholars, we've assumed that the text has, has, has priority over all other things. Mm. But, but more and more, um, biblical scholars are, are, are beginning to appreciate the richness of the material culture that, that gives witness to the presence of those who don't fit the mold. Um, and, and I think even there, I, I would want to say that women are present in the text if you are willing to see it. You know, so you can read through the whole of Romans, for example, and, and, and then draw the conclusion that women are not really present, you know. But you read chapter 16 and women are overwhelmingly present and occupy very important and critical roles within the context of the church. But if I'm an interpreter of the text and I never pay any attention to the presence of women, then it, it, it reinforces the conclusion that women are absent. But in fact, if you read chapter 16 of Romans, women play prominent, critical, authoritative roles in the context of the church and are often positioned first over against men. And that changes again how we understand things. In fact, Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans chapter 16, is likely to have been the person responsible for reading the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. Now think about that for a moment. The minute you have Phoebe reading the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Roman church, when we say that, we're also saying that she very likely was responsible for interpreting that letter. Right? So this is a, this is a plausible um, conclusion that we might draw from the fact that she carries the responsibility to present that letter to the community. And that, again, changes how we understand and appreciate Paul. There's another thing I want to say. I think we have sometimes missed um, aspects of Paul because we see Paul as an individual in isolation from the community to which he is attached and the, the community of people with whom he shares his ministry. Paul is not on his own. Um, I'll take one example to illustrate. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul identifies Silvanus and Timothy as his co-authors. And unlike his other letters, 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Thessalonians does a remarkable job of presenting the plurality of the authors consistently throughout the letter. So in a sense, all the words that are written in 1 Thessalonians belong not just to Paul, but belong to Silvanus and Timothy. Yes, they're three men, but the point is, is that Paul is a part of a community. He is not an individual that is isolated. And I think our individualism continue to see him as the primary, um, you know, the, the, the big thinker, when in fact he thinks in community, he participates in communities, he is writing in community. And so it's not Paul's thoughts so much as it's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy's thoughts in 1 Thessalonians 
And I think that changes how we read those those words. Wow, that 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 changes a lot, even in the sense of um, the the superiority of Paul, especially exactly. in in a lot in the Kenyan context. I would say that Paul is regarded much higher than even Jesus himself. Sure. Uh, and so I, but okay, um, in the sense of that we hear more about Paul and what yeah. Paul did than Jesus and what yeah. the mandate of Jesus for the church was. Yeah. And I, as we are winding up, I, I keep coming back to the role of the academy, the role of the uh, theological institution and also yeah. the role of the church in Africa yeah. based on decolonization, based mm-hmm. on uh, on undoing the patriarchy uh, in the churches mm-hmm. and in the church and academia. How do we, what's the future of theological training and churches in in Africa, one that is is decolonized, one that is is that a word like depatriarchalized? De- yeah, <laughs> Just, let's make one up. It's good. I like it. <laughs> make up one, but also one that's that's political in the sense that not one that's uh, seeking political uh, posts and all that, and but one that speaks to the needs of the people, that speaks mm-hmm. to the liberation, to the holistic liberation of the people, a church that's just, a church that's seeking justice for people. What do we need to go there? Sure. I think that's that's really just the best question to be asking. Um, I, I think it's the question that we actually have to be wrestling with at theological institutions, I think in some ways. So one of the one of the work one of the aspects of the work that I do in, in terms of quality assurance is that I'm often invited by the Council on Higher Education, who's responsible for accrediting um, academic institutions and theological institutions would be among those. And I I, I get invited to go and do site visits and evaluations of, of programs that theological institutions offer. And, and I think from that perspective, it gives me a, a lens into what's happening at theological institutions in South Africa. And I think in some ways there's a, there's a sense of hopefulness. I think there are pockets and examples of institutions that are beginning to think outside of the traditional categories of what it means to be a theological institution. Um, I don't think that they're nearly at the point where they're going to be making massive impacts just yet, because I think too many theological institutions are still caught up in very traditional modes of understanding how a theological institution should be structured, how programs should be designed, what courses are taught, et cetera, et cetera. But there definitely is evidence that as we begin to change the curricula of theological programs where we introduce gender studies, where we introduce 
um, things that take cognizance of the intersections between gender, health, and religion, for example, or where we where we begin to confront how denominational affiliation often blinds us to aspects of the text that we actually need to confront and deal with and respond to. Um, you know, I think these are examples of the kinds of things that should probably begin to evidence itself at the curricular level. And that's, that's a work in progress in some ways. I think there's always a, tension within theological institutions, especially those that are affiliated with a denomination. The, the denomination also needs to be doing the work of, of thinking differently about theological education because theological institutions are often so dependent on those denominations uh, for funding, for student, you know, sourcing students and so on. Um, so a theological institution is somehow bound by the, the very staid, stable, um, doctrinal position of a denomination, which makes it quite difficult. But as I said, I think there are examples of theological institutions that are beginning to, to make an inroad in terms of thinking in decolonial ways about education and, and, and about theological education in particular, but I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think there's still, there's still a, maybe a sense of fear and concern that if theological institutions change too much, that they will lose um, the, the, the affiliations, the connections that they have with denominations. And then that obviously means it puts the institution at, you know, at a, in a very weak position financially and and therefore you know what future is guaranteed so work at both those levels needs to happen obviously in context like um like the university where there isn't affiliations with denominations then i think the work in some ways is a little easier and the work of decolonializing higher education will have an impact on on what happens in a theological fact faculty but i think there's also a recognition there that there aren't nearly as many as we used to have, especially in South Africa, um, theological faculties anymore. They just aren't, you know, they, they're small departments at best and, and they're not really attracting the kinds of students. And maybe that is reflective of, of the fact that maybe in some ways there's been a disconnect, um, you know, uh, missing out on an opportunity. But I think it also reflects a shift in our society i think there are a lot of churches nowadays that that think that theological education isn't that critical that we can you know we can train our pastors in-house we don't need to send them off to a cornerstone or a whatever or whatever um you know we'll 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 give you the tools that you need um and i think that's risky um as much as I'm committed to the idea that theological education belongs in the church, I'm also committed to the idea that there also needs to be a, a more deliberate space of where you know where more critical engagement can actually play out. And I I, I keep realizing that most of the times and uh, many times. Do you know I knew of James Cone a year before he died? Yeah. I was very upset about that. Yeah. But I was, knew about um, womanism and womanism. Yeah. 
uh, yes. theologies after, like yeah. two years or three years ago. Yeah. And I, I would love for Latin America theologies and African theologies to to be mainstreamed as well because most of the times when we are speaking theology, yeah. the one we are talking it's about white. is theology. And white theology does not want to be called contem- contextual. Yeah, it's it's true. Context. So I, I I long for yeah for the integration of all theologies into one and the yeah yeah and the work that's being done to do that and sometimes it will it will mean losing uh, and it's a shame that the the. <laughs> That the patriarchal colonial institutions are the ones with the funding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we shouldn't be surprised that that is the way it is, right? <laughs> they have the capital and they've accumulated yeah. it over time. Yeah. And so maybe it's even how do we do guerrilla theologies, you yeah. know? Yeah. The ones that just uproot and up. Exactly. Because we need we need this theologies because they are our theologies they are our realities yeah and they are the words that breathe and speak life into exactly exactly any parting shot anything you would like to say that you wanted to say but you haven't sure i i don't know other than to say that I, i just think these are the kinds of conversations that we need to be having more and more and and yeah just recognizing that my own story as a white male biblical scholar, I just, I have to constantly make myself aware of that reality. I can't pretend that it's not affecting how I think and how I read and how I engage. Um, and so I need to be doing that work for myself as well. Um, and, and, and as you say, I think when we begin to read the voices of others, those who've been marginalized by the system, I think we begin to see a more beautiful picture of of who God is emerge, one that isn't just like me. And I think that brings a level of discomfort, but I've never, ever really engaged with the biblical text um, in in a way that that suggests that it's only ever intended to make you feel warm and fuzzy. I think the point of the text is to make you intensely uncomfortable. Um, at points and and for that discomfort then to move you and to mobilize you and to make you become more aware and to see the world as it really is and then not just to see it but I think um, as I said to mobilize and to leverage what resources you have so I think the thing that I'm trying to learn how to do is is how to leverage the privilege that I've accrued as a white male um, in ways that that serve back into the community, um, and that's not always easy. And I, I often get that wrong. Rob, thank you. I am so honored. I was honored ten years ago when, you, or more actually, it's more when you were my teacher. <laughs> now honored. Gosh, how old am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're feeling old, then you can imagine how old I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was, um, 
you you really played a huge part in my formation, in my thinking, in my biblical understanding. And I am so grateful for the work that you have done, not just to me, but to many of us. And so thank you for serving us in that way. Thank you, Carol. And just to say thank you for, for the influence that you're having in shaping my thinking and shaping my life. And, and I think the beauty of, of, of these kinds of relationships is that they work both ways. And um, I, I continue to, to watch um, the amazing work that you are doing and, and just wish you everything of the best. Thank you for the opportunity to just share a little bit with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And maybe one day you... You, we would give you like a series to teach us on things like you never know we could do that exactly exactly look forward to something like that all right so thank you to everybody for listening in and thank you for taking your time to just engage with the content that we are producing i i hope that once you listen to this you share it with a friend or two and as always remember keep doing justice if you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Trust, share this podcast with your friends and family, and also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa, plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini, and thank you for joining us.